Hey, good morning, everyone. Good afternoon, wherever, if you're all located on, uh, in Europe and across the world, this is Stuart Crawford again with the MSP show here on Blog Talk Radio. And I want to thank the folks at Blog Talk Radio for creating an awesome platform for us to create podcasts like this. And for those who are new to us, we're also available on your favorite at-home listening device. So all you have to do is go to your Alexa, and she's going to say something here in a minute. Uh, just uh, you know, enable the MSP show or go to your Google Home and uh, enable it on there as well. And you can stream our shows once a week here on Blog Talk Radio, live on your favorite uh, Echo device or Google at home device. So we're going a little different this time. We have the cameras on this week, and I got uh, my good friend Carl Dixon. Now, some of you may know Carl. Some of you may not. Uh, but Carl uh, is a former or current lead singer for a band called Coney Hatch, which is a personal, personal favorite of mine. I'm, and for those people who don't know me that well, I'm a closet Canadian rock and roll fan. I love... Uh, you know, everything, Carl, from Rush to Tragically Hip, uh, even some of the local Ontario bands I grew up with, like you guys, Brighton Rock, Helix, Killer Dwarfs, all that era is like, that's, I'm a closet uh, Canadian hard rock fan. So, so first of all, well, thank, you for, thank, thank, thank you for that. Thank, thank you for seeing me through my teenage years. <laughs> well, somebody I, had to I, do it. <laughs> I think I remember, uh, I think I got the first Coney Hatch record when I was like, 13 or 14 years old uh and uh, i put on the you know i put the needle on the record and um and it just was just bl blown away and now of course on your fourth album you got a song called blown away which is great but uh um uh, you know i have to tell you a story carl and you know when i was uh 19 20 just getting into the canadian military you guys were playing a show in nagshead north in toronto and i'm sure you remember that place i don't think it's there anymore or something else. At least. No, but yeah, we played a few times there. Yes. Yeah, and uh, we were confined to the Kingston area, so we all snuck away and uh, went and went and saw the show in Exit North. It was great. And I was I was thinking last night, did you guys also open for Honeymoon Suite in like 1984, 85? Uh, I wonder if you guys played Niagara Falls Arena back back then. Uh, our cross may, may have crossed back then because you, I think uh, you guys, I met up with you at the local Burger King in, uh, in Niagara Falls well, back then. Uh, I don't remember opening for Honeymoon Suite. I remember when they were opening for us and they were getting 200 bucks a show, uh, which was when well, they were first. Maybe it was the other way around then. Yeah, maybe uh, it was the other way yeah, around, they, but that was, that was great. That yeah, well, no, they, no show was great. <laughs> yeah, there was, those were good times. <clears throat> and then I just saw you recently in Kitchener in 2012, you guys, when you guys uh, got back together again and put a, a good show in Kitchener. Hey, but talk, you know, let's talk about that, Carl. I mean, I like to look at the music industry as, as a business, right? So, um, but tell us about the early days and, go, and getting started. You know, obviously, you know, one of the things I teach my clients is to live your passion and work, you know, and and follow your passion. For me, it's marketing IT companies. That's a strange passion. That's my passion. Um, you know, obviously, to you know, be this long in the music career, uh, having a music career this long and doing you know stuff with Coney Hatch, Guess Who, and some solo projects. Um, that, that passion still burning. Oh, gee, I yes, I always make light of it. You know, the I try to find the the humor in anything, and so I make jokes that well, at this point, I'm not qualified to do anything else. <laughs> Or, uh, you know, I also joke that I'm too dumb to quit. But, on you know, the fact is, it's been the way my molecules are arranged since I was a baby. I started playing piano when I was three and 
did that for six, seven years, and I picked up guitar next, and I was absolutely nuts for the the rock uh, and the pop music that was on the radio when I was a little boy, uh, like the Guess Who and the Beatles and Credence and all that great stuff that was coming up in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. It just was so exciting, and it made me feel like, wow, that just makes me feel so good. That's That makes sense to me. I, I want to be... I want to do that. Now, the funny thing is, when I was growing up, it didn't occur to me that I could ever be one of those guys. I just, I just felt so good playing the music, and I never even visualized having a career. I finished high school, and I thought I was going to go to university and become a phys ed teacher because I also loved sports and, uh, and teaching. So it really uh, was probably uh, inevitable that I took a year off instead you know, I'll, I'll take a year off from school and then go back to university after that. Never went back. And that's how uh, I ended up in Coney Hatch eventually, was following the path. One, one thing leads to another. Because if you're following your passion, you're always, always also trying to learn how to improve your skills and improve your performance and get better results, which totally relates to a business approach because if you want to succeed you have to perfect your product and and that's the funny thing about the arts there's never perfect even though i spent a lot of my young years trying to perfect what i was doing what i finally realized some years later was it's far better to go for being great than being perfect because there's a million ways to be great and only one way to be perfect and so why why limit yourself to what because perfect can only reflect your current understanding of the, of the things you know at that point. What you visualize as perfect may be nothing near what perfect could be if you knew more and had more experience. So that's why if you go for being great instead, it throws off those limitations and those blinders of must per, you know, stay on this path till I get it absolutely right. No, no, no. Open up those walls and just have the whole, whole sky open to you. And, and what, I think it was Tony Robbins that said that there's no such thing as perfection anyway. Everything can be improved upon. So I do like that. Go great instead of trying to be perfect. That, that would, uh, I think that would take a lot of pressure off people. Uh, you know, so let's, let's look back at that, the early days of uh, how did you and Andy and Steve and uh, Dave get together? Like, did you guys all go to school together, you know, or uh, how did you guys come to, come to form Coney Hatch? Coney Hatch came from four very different streams. Uh, I'm from Northern Ontario originally, and I worked my way south one town at a time. Uh, lived in Halliburton next, which I've returned to now to live in many years later, and lived in Collingwood for a year, and then finally ended up in Barrie, going to high school there. And that's where I first started being in bands. Moved to Montreal to join a band there after I'd gotten my start uh, with a couple of other things. And finally realized, well, Montreal isn't really a place that has a, a pathway for me. So I moved back to the Toronto area. Um, and within a few months, I saw an ad in the, a classified ad in the Toronto Star newspaper for a band looking for a lead sing for a singing guitar player. Now, that, see, that's interesting, the distinction in the ad, because Andy Curran always wanted to be a lead singer, but he's always had somebody else in the band that could sing better. So he, he, he was very careful to not say, we don't want a lead singer. We want a guitar player who can sing. 
unfortunately, <laughs> or well, fortunately for Tony Hatch, but unfortunately for Andy's ambitions at the time, they got me. And it, it, I'm a lead singer. Um, without, I hope, the attitude that famously goes along with being a lead singer. Andy Curran was, was a private school boy from Mississauga, from a fairly wealthy family. Steve Shelsky uh, grew up in Etobicoke, uh, a part of Toronto. His dad was a union boss at Canada Packers. Dave Ketchum lived in Rexdale in Toronto. His dad worked for the TTC. None of us knew each other before we formed Coney, before one piece at a time, Coney Hatch was formed. It started with Dave. He found Andy with another guitar player. They advertised, found Steve. Then they advertised and found me after they'd been going about a year. And we'll, and we'll, come, we'll come back to Coney Hatch uh... After that, you guys put out three uh, three amazing records uh, in the uh, in the eighties and uh, and a lot of and a lot of the stuff that I you know, the music that I grew up on, which is fantastic, and uh, you know and then uh, and then it just kind of fell apart from there. You know what what happened in the uh, in the after that third record, you guys kind of went. You know, so I know Andy came out with his uh, his own uh, his own album, and uh, I think the single off that was No Tattoos, which is a great piece of music as well. Um, you know, and then then also I hear that you're uh, playing in the guess who. Yeah, well, you know, nothing happens quickly in this business. Andy's solo record was four years after Coney Hatch stopped. You know what really happened there is the the emotions that go along with being first of all artists, second being competitive young guys who are we had duplication of, of roles in a number of fronts. We had two, two guys that wanted to be the singer and, you know, I was getting most of the work and Andy was getting some of the songs. Two different songwriting streams that uh, we worked together on some, we didn't work together on others. And two guys playing guitar and uh, the only guy that didn't have a duplication <laughs> role was uh, our drummer. But, you know, poor old Dave, we, we bounced him and, and replaced him. So that was a dumb move. So emotions built up. Our third album was a crushing disappointment. And this is a, some kind of a business lesson, I guess. We spent the most money and, went, and the most time on making our third album that we had of any of the records that we did. And it was all aimed at, okay, we got to break through in the States this time or else, you know, we can't make our money back. You spend a lot of money making an album and it's very difficult to get sales enough just in Canada to make the money back and start going into profit. So you have to find other markets. The United States has traditionally been the market where Canadian artists can sell records and make a profit if they can break through. It's very hard to break through. So for a number of reasons, we didn't get the traction in the United States that we hoped for. Our label <clears throat> had changed uh, corporate heads, president of the label changed. Our, our key guys at the company weren't there anymore. And suddenly there wasn't love for Coney Hatch at the big international level. Um, the thing that is really was discouraging, and we didn't find this out for, well, it's not discouraging so much after the fact. It was puzzling. We found out almost 30 years later that uh, we had sold really well in Europe. No one ever told us that. And no one ever sent mm. us over there to play in Europe and build on the, the interest there. Uh, so <clears throat> it, well, it was at least 25 years later when we finally found out, you guys did really well in Europe. 
so the, between the discouragement of these high hopes all crashing and then the competing roles where we had two lead singers and I'd gotten almost all the songs on the, the third album and Andy, I know, was expecting, okay, well, that didn't work. My turn, you know, <laughs> to be the main singer. So I, I talked myself into, wow, I could do this well on my own. I'll, you know what? I'll have my own solo album by Christmas. Well, it turned out to be Christmas eight years later because <laughs> big miscalculation. Uh, it's, a, it's very much uh, a smoother path and a more enjoyable path to be part of a group rather than trying to do everything yourself. You have that team feeling where everybody's, uh, uh, you know, you have arguments and you have discussions and you have disappointments, but you're doing it together with more than one person's thoughts and energy. And that collective builds much more of a momentum than one person can. You know, I like that, Carl. I like the way you put it because I, I see the same struggles in, you know, in every business that I uh, coach and consult with as well is that, you know, there's, sometimes there's a difference of creative juices at the top and that just filters down to all the people as well. But I think having a united sense of direction is just what they teach in all business school. Anyway, have a united sense of direction and everybody's on the same way. Yeah, disagree behind closed doors. But once you step up into the public, that everybody's on the same wavelength. And it sounds like... Uh, that was an important lesson that you guys learned as well. Yes. Well, we, you know, we didn't have, we had supposedly one of the biggest management firms in the world. We had the same management as Rush and the same uh, record company as Rush. And we were signed with the promise that sign with us and you'll open on tours with Rush. Oh boy, was that ever exciting to 21 year olds from, from Ontario, you know, but it never happened. And they were not really paying close attention to us. And that's a, what you said about watching uh, examples of business. One of the early lessons I learned from watching the management of Rush and the big guy that was uh, the rich guy at the head of it all, every organization is a reflection of the people at the top, for good or bad. The, their ways, their expectations, their uh, habits will flow down through the organization because everybody learns. Oh, if I want to be in this company, I have to meet the expectations of that guy. And if that guy has some funny expectations or some inattention or wrong ideas that is, and he can't be argued with, then the, you know, the company is going to go in a funny, funny direction. The thing yeah, with Rush is they were, always, they were always so focused and powerful as a three-man unit that they just powered their way through obstacles the uh, the beauty of the manager they had who became our manager was he was a great business negotiator, but he was not a people person. <laughs> he was not a guy that you'd expect to sit down and work out your strategy with you. He was a guy that you, if you needed to get a new contract, he could go out, go in and get the best possible contract for you. So more like an agent. And, he, and you know what? You need that too. Yeah, you need that too, yeah. right? So, you know, so that, that was very, you know, some, you know, very important life lessons learned, uh, maybe not, not at the moment, but a few years later anyways. Um, so what, uh, how did you get involved with the Guess Who? Because that's, an, you know, another one of my favorite bands, uh, you know, from Winnipeg. And uh, you know, we all know the story behind that. And uh, how did you get involved with that band? Because I remember, I think, now again, I remember seeing in Buffalo or the, I think North Tonawanda or something like that. And I can't remember if you were singing or not because I, I was, 
Well, that was in my late teens, Canal so I had probably other. I, had, I don't know. I, I don't know. I can't remember, but it was. It was uh, North Tonawanda, probably 1988. So I'm not sure if you were in, in with oh, them at that time or no, not. No, I wasn't. I wasn't with them then. I had my first Carl Dixon solo band going in 1988. The the connection to the Guess Who came about dating back to the Coney Hatch days, actually. You know, the lineup of the Guess Who has changed uh, many times over the years, but uh, a few people have been constant. Gary Peterson, the drummer, has been there through everything right from the start in 1963. So, and he's still part of it today. Uh, Jim Cale, the bass player, started out with the original band and was out for a while, then picked it up again and got it going and ended up, between him and Gary Peterson, eventually owning the name, the Guess Who. Nobody else wanted it. Burton Cummings was off flying high as a solo. Randy Bachman had succeeded with BTO and he had his other int- irons in the fire. So it was almost, they said at that time, when Jim said, do you mind if I go out and make a living? Because nobody else is using the name. They said, yeah, God bless you. Go off, make a living, Jim. Things turned acrimonious much later when <laughs> the name took on renewed value in everyone's eyes. But my connection to it, we um, the keyboard player who joined in 1989 or 90, still a dear friend, Coney Hatch used to rent a van from him, an equipment van, to go on our U.S. tours because uh, he was living in Toronto. He was a Winnipeg guy who moved to Toronto. So we built a connection, a friendship through that. And then <clears throat> we wrote some songs together in the 80s. And then he got the call to join the Guess Who. When uh, they were changing singers, he called me and thought, Carl, you'd be perfect for this. It, do you want to do it? So um, I met with Jim Cale, who was the leader at that time. And he decided I looked too young at that point <laughs> to be in the band. This was 1991. So they got somebody else at that time. Meanwhile, I went off on my own path and did my first solo album and had a songwriting deal in the States and started a few other um, touring bands just for staying alive gigs. Then in 97, they called me again, my friend uh, Leonard, to say, look, we, this singer's quit and we needed somebody again. Do you want to look at it this time? So. I said, you know what, why not? I love the music, just like every Canadian boy. And so they said, okay, we'll send you some tracks of our live show. Why don't you go into a studio, record yourself singing to the instrumental tracks, and we'll we'll judge from there if it's a fit. Well, I heard from later, after I did the recording and sent it in, that some of them thought it was Burton Cummings playing a joke on them. uh, Because I guess I love the music so much, I managed to inhabit the character of Burton to a certain extent in the vocals. I learned a lot of how to sing by listening to Guess Who records and listening to Burton's performances. So it was a natural fit for me. And so 97 that happened and I got on board until they did the reunion in 2000. And so they, they said, well, okay, all the guys that weren't in the original band, see ya. But I was such a fan of the band, I said, look, that's okay. Burton can have his chair back. I, I, I would love to see this myself, even though I'm losing my job. Please, guys, go. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, the reunion didn't turn out to be an enduring thing. Certain, uh, there's a joke I have after being in this business for so long and seeing how many bands have fights and acrimony and long memories of things that happened 30 years ago or fresh fights that are based on the old, how the original relationships were established. 
And that is that uh, sometimes, you know, people always ask, how many original members? Sometimes you can have too many original <laughs> members and then, it's, <laughs> then the, the business can't go forward because they're still fighting those old fights. You know, do you ever, um, I don't know if you're, if you're ever tuned into Eddie Trunk, who's on, uh, I think he's on one of the satellite radio stations. I've spoken to Eddie Trunk. And Eddie, yeah. talks about, Eddie talks about this a lot, where he, um, you know, he talks about, you know, just, you know, promoters getting labels now just to put on, and, you know, and, and, uh, and the fans may or may not be aware that there might be only one. Like, Rat is one example. Uh, you know, is Stephen Piercy in the band or out of the band for this tour? Warrant is another band that I, you know, remember, you know, them talking about. You guys have ever run across that, that when you have uh, people expecting to see the original guys and out comes Carl? Well, it, it comes, it, that situation spins in many directions. There were people that were convinced I was Burton. And they would say, hey, Burton, you haven't lost a thing over the years when they talked to me after the show. <laughs> yeah. I remember two late. One of the first shows I did, we were in Nebraska, and two ladies came up to me giggling after the show in the autograph line, and they were probably in their sixties. And they said, "You look exactly the same as you did when we were in high school." I never looked anything like Burton Cummings. <laughs> they were seeing through their memories, and yeah. was, and I did not want to make people feel bad, so I never pretended I was Burton, but I just didn't want to shoot people down or puncture their balloon in that magical moment in their lives and you know they may spend the rest of their lives feeling good about it and never finding out that oh that wasn't Burton there that day they were convinced then the opposite end of that is the people that savaged me online I got some vicious vicious online abuse from people who were just so livid that somebody would dare step into the shoes of the of St. Burton you know and the fact is, he didn't want the job for the longest time. He was busy being the Burton Cummings show. And when he did... Yeah, want, playing, uh, playing, the open, playing the national anthem at the Winnipeg Jets game. That's when the first time I saw him live. <laughs> well, if, you know what? It's, it's funny my role in the Guess Who, because a, a 45 by the Guess Who was the first record I ever bought when I was a little boy. I used to be excited, so excited, when the next Guess Who album was coming out. And... Uh, and the first big concert I ever saw was the Guess Who at the old Exhibition Stadium in Toronto. When, oh, uh, yeah, some good memories of that place. Yeah. So it, that was actually my launching pad up close to, to getting involved in music, um, early experiences that were directly tied to the Guess Who. So to end up in the band 35 years later it felt kind of like an, an easy a seamless fit for me because it had always meant so much to me and still does I, I enjoy the music and my role as the Burton Cummings guy um, I had to learn to take it as you know what it's it's all I've, I've learned very very deeply that the music business and all entertainment really is all an illusion based on people's feelings. It's a, it's a marketing exercise based on how does it make you feel and happy memories, especially for the bands that came up in the old days, 60s, 70s, even 80s bands now, when it was, the music business had that marketing platform worldwide of the big industry machine that could 
put an ad around the world for the next Michael Jackson album, everyone in the world would know, oh, the next Michael Jackson album's coming. Or we'd all, we'd all tune in to see the same video or the same around the world, the same single would be released by an, an act that um, had enabled a marketing push to be really coordinated and successful. Or you'd find out in a hurry, if, if you put it around the world and nobody liked it, okay, <laughs> there's a miscalculation. <laughs> Back to the drawing board. You know, I, uh, you know I, I'm just surprised, or I'm shocked or surprised, Carl, that, you know, how many bands are still holding on to it. I think, you know, the way you summarized it there about the, the emotion and the feelings kind of brings it all together. Because I think, you know, that's how I feel when I, you know, I hear like one of my bands as a kid, you know, is, you know, playing some, you know, my state of my life, I'm almost 50 now. You know, I have no reservation about hopping on a plane. Like I, I, I think I mentioned to uh, Jerry at uh, Brighton Rock, I said, you know, next time you guys are playing the Hamilton gig or Toronto gig, I'll be on a plane up to Toronto come and see you guys because I know they're not going to come to Florida here and play down here. Well, they, they may, but not, not regularly. You know, I think a lot of people like my age now are traveling to come and see bands like yours because, uh, you know, they're not touring as much. And you're, you're now becoming a destination versus, uh, you know, you guys doing the grueling tours. Well, that, yes, there are two reasons for that. One is that in most cases, the musicians that are part of the, that were part of those bands in the glory days mainly have found other ways to make a living now because not everyone gets to be a rock star with a big bag of money and go live on a desert island or on a Caribbean island, you know? So mm -hmm. a number of guys, it, the income stream dwindles or they lose interest. Not everyone is interested in being a musician all their lives. Something I, I wrote in my book, uh, at the end of a chapter where I described one of my first bands with my high school buddies and how it all just blew up in our faces on our first foray out into the big wide world. I closed the chapter by saying, four out of the five people on that trip decided it was, uh, time to find something more sensible to do. Go back to school, get a regular job, settle down, get married. One of the five people decided it was time to go look for his next band. <laughs> now you. That was me. <laughs> Everyone else quit. And you know, I'm about the only guy that I started out with that's still doing this as a livelihood full time, being a performer, entertainer. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's true. I sold my first company 10 years ago. I was uh, living out in Calgary at the time and I just ran out of gas, Carl. Like, I mean, it's like some of these musicians that you play with. As you know, I just lost my energy and lost my enjoyment for what I was doing. Sure. So I decided when the first person, first person came in with a good offer, I, was, I took it and jumped at it and said, okay, time to shift gears. And I started this company that I'm doing now. And, uh, you know, it was the next stage of my life. And I think we can relate the same thing in the music industry. But let's, and that hearts let's back talk about the passion element that you started this conversation with, when the passion exactly. is gone, you're just going through the motions after that. There's no joy in it. You've got to find something. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, let's, let's, let's kind of fast forward a little bit to 2008, because I think that was a light, another life-changing moment for you. Uh, you know, you had, uh, we have a lot of Australian uh, clients as well, and uh, a lot of them in the Melbourne area. So some of them may be listening to this will may remember the day that this happened because they probably heard it on the news, but, um, describe to me, because uh, I saw it on one of your recent YouTube videos, that, uh, you know, that life-changing effect, of, uh, it, uh, it really kind of probably impacted your life in a big way. 
it doesn't get bigger in one's life than being ripped to shreds and almost killed uh, in the space of about two seconds. And yes, I was in Australia. My daughter, uh, who was 12 at the time, <clears throat> pardon me, was starring in a TV show called The Saddle Club, which was a uh, horses and little girls uh, kind of show. And my uh, family was split up. My family, as it was at that time, was split up for the purpose of doing this. Me in Canada, still touring with the Guess Who, and my older daughter kind of hanging back here, my younger daughter and her mother in Australia to do the TV show because there had to be a chaperone involved. This, I set my daughter up with an agent because a friend of mine introduced us and I thought, oh, maybe she'll get a couple of commercials or you know, a little uh, extra role in a show, something, <clears throat> pardon me, around our home in Toronto. No, her second audition, she gets a starring role in a series at the other end of the world. Okay, what do you do with that? Well, um, a few factors went into the, uh, the problems of that time, including that her, her mother had decided uh, she was no longer interested in wonderful me, uh, you know, which is the hardest thing to wrap your mind around when, especially with what I do, constant feedback that, Carl, you're wonderful, Carl, you're wonderful, and we love you, and then, at home, they don't have to live with you. <laughs> mm -hmm. So things were not, I didn't even understand because I was a total, uh, my, my nickname at Coney Hatch was milk and cookies, Carl. I was always the, the wholesome, nice guy that, that uh, believed in doing things the right way. And, and I was not a druggie, drinker, womanizer, rock star. I was absolutely the Boy Scout. I probably missed out on some fun, but oh well. <laughs> anyway. Things uh, in Australia were fall falling apart. I visited a couple of times and it was clear that the family was not headed in a unified direction. I made a third visit to try and remind everyone, oh, I lo look, I, we, I love you guys. Come on, this, this, what's the problem here? Well, uh, I was aware even more in the third visit that things were bad. I came up with a term in retrospect after talking about this a number of times. I had a terrible car accident because I was emotionally impaired. And that's a new term I've coined to describe that state where you're so upset and your mind is in such turmoil, you're disengaged from your surroundings. I was at the wheel of a car in a foreign country where they drive on the other side of the road. But in my mind, I w maybe I was in Canada, maybe I was in space, I don't know, because I was just so caught up in the emotions of fear and worry that I forgot they drive on the other side of the road in Australia and on this little country road outside Melbourne on the way to Dalesford where the show was being filmed and we were staying. I met some poor guy coming home from work after dark on the right, on the proper side of the road for an Australian to drive. But here was this dumb Canadian square in his path. We were on a bend. We were both going a hundred kilometers an hour head on and mm in the space of about the two seconds of impact, his much bigger car came over the hood of my car and crushed everything down on top of me. And I had approximately 50 different injuries, a number of them severe life-threatening, uh, not least of which was the loss of blood that occurred right after. I had a uh, spinal fracture, this side of my head was crushed, this arm was almost ripped off, and uh, 
bones sticking out. My legs were ripped to shreds and broken to pieces and fingers and toes broken, internal injuries, collapsed lung, uh, laceration on the liver, unbelievable amounts of things and my face ripped to shreds. And so there I was on this little country road in, it was about 7.30 at night, I guess. Unbelievably, there were people who came along within a minute who began the process of seeing if I was alive and to their, un, to their surprise, I was. Within about five minutes, along came the captain of the local emergency rescue force, the volunteer rescue force based in a little town called Balan, with his daughter who was in paramedic school. So these were the very first uh, uh, medical help that arrived. Well, actually, the second person was a lady who was a midwife, a nurse. So she was able to put some practical medical knowledge in place right away to keep me at least talking and then they got the emergency force in. I was stuck in the car for an hour and 45 minutes before they could get me out. And by then I was completely unconscious in a coma for 10 days in a hospital called the, the Royal Alfred in, um, in Melbourne where the trauma units took me on and they, were, they weren't certain I would live through the night, but, and they were going to amputate one of my arms and one of my legs and they were sure I'd wake up a quadriplegic or blind or brain damaged because of all the different injuries. And uh, somehow with their amazing work and 38 hours of surgeries, um, I lived and came out the other end of the coma, absolutely helpless. The only part of me that was not injured was my left shoulder and left arm. So that was the only thing I could move. But I woke up with no idea where I was or what had happened. So. It was uh, the most disconcerting experience to go through. And because I, you know, my lengthy career has, and the fact I'm still doing it was all based on determination and never quit, never say die, find the way to keep going. I was in complete denial about how badly I was hurt. And I, I was telling the guess who guy, this was while I was with the guess who that this happened. I was supposed to meet them in Biloxi, Mississippi. Uh, the, the day after the crash, I was supposed to get on a plane and resume the tour. So they were absolutely in shock because they had built their whole plans on, their forward plans on, okay, Burton's not coming back. Carl is the lead singer of the Guess Who going forward forever. So we'll build our long range plans around Carl's the guy. And so when I was suddenly broken, their whole future was in doubt and in disarray. They built their company around me being the, the horse that was pulling the wagon, you know? So everybody's lives uh, were impacted in a sudden and shocking way. I, I, um, I appreciate the phrase you used, the emotional impairment, because I think a lot of business owners and, you know, myself probably suffer through that as well. We're kind of just not, I guess, not present uh, in our mm -hmm. current surroundings. I think, uh, you know, nowhere near the, you know where you've been but i i can i can recall you know that same effect happening i think a lot of business owners kind of uh they live they live in this world where nobody sees it because you know to their company they have to be the strong leader of the company and confident and and i think a lot of and i actually put a post on facebook a little while ago that uh you know mental mental illness in business owners the rate's got to be really high because nobody's there to help them 
and I can uh, I can kind of connect the dots between what happened with you and what happened with a lot of myself and other business owners that I know that sometimes um, you know that emotional impairment gets in the way and you don't you, you don't make the right decision and you're just you're just going through the motions and uh, yeah. it's it's challenging. Yes, well, if, when stress is unrelenting and you don't have an outlet for it and you don't see relief in sight or a solution in sight, then it just becomes this ever-increasing loop of more and more and more confusion and, and um, fear. Fear is a function of that too, because, or a result of that, I should say. And, you know, my, my public speaking, my keynote speaking I've done since I had this accident, I never would have thought about being a speaker before I had this accident. And, and this story was such, became such a huge part of my existence. But uh, that's how I came up with that term, emotional impairment, was really, it's almost like my therapy for coming back to Earth uh, from, you're, you're knocked into orbit when something that big happens in your life. And bit by bit, I found my way back to Earth through the, and it's like my therapy sessions when I'm talking to an audience of corporate people at, a, at an event, because it's always different. And I always learn something new myself, a new insight from talking through it. That's where the term emotional impairment came from. And another observation I've had is that emotion travels so much faster through our system than intellect and reason because emotions tied to the fight or flight response, the adrenaline charge that goes with, ah, what does this mean? What's going to happen? Oh no. <laughs> and you're you suddenly you're flooded with those reactive uh, chemicals where, where um, thoughts and your intelligence can't go that fast. So the hardest part, I think, is to recognize over time and repetition of having those experiences that, hold on, hold on, don't do anything. It's almost like you have to say, let my brain catch up first before I decide what to do next. Unless it's- Yeah, it's like, um, I, was, I was the guy who wrote, uh, wasn't, I wasn't, Jack Canfield, it was chicken, soup for the, or chicken Soup for the Soul or whatever that book series was. I remember I seen him speak about 10 years ago in uh, Snowmass, Colorado. And he mentioned, he did this equation, E plus O equals R. So the event, um, oh, sorry, E plus R equals O. The event plus your response equals the outcomes that you get. And I think Excellent. as an emotional guy like me, who would get to, you know, makes a lot, I made a lot of dumb emotional decisions in my life. Um, you know, you know, sometimes I have to, I have to continue to work with that, you know, okay, hey, calm down, think this through, sleep on it. Uh, and in the morning, it might not be as bad, right? I, I have fired clients, Carl, where I shouldn't have fired clients because I just let the emotions get the best of me, and, and uh, that, that happens. But, uh, yeah. you know, let's, uh, you know, that was, that's an amazing journey, you know, journey that you had on that. I mean, I, you know, and I recently didn't learn, I just learned about that uh, a few years ago because um, I was, uh, you know, I was in the middle of uh, building my own company and uh, all that stuff. And I was like kind of my own little world back in 2008. So I didn't really, and I was living in Calgary at the time too. So a lot of the stuff didn't make it out that far West. Um, but that was like early days of the internet. So we didn't have Facebook and all that stuff back then. But, uh, you know, 2012 comes along and, uh, you know, Andy and the boys hook up with you and uh, you guys play some gigs and, uh, and, and kind of, was that, I know that they can't, they basically said to you, Hey, Carl, if you get better, we're getting back together. Yes. Well, Andy made a call while to the hospital in Australia while I was in a coma still. And, uh, he asked to have the phone held up to me 
even though I was unresponsive. And apparently he said that message over the phone. Carl, you have to get better. The hatch still has a lot of rocking to do. Come on now, you know? And somehow I remembered that when I woke up. And when I, it was a couple of years, two, three years before I was able to do anything like what I used to do as a performer. Um, and that I lost the Guess Who gig as a result because I just could not return to work. And they, they had to keep the company going somehow. So they were forced to replace me. And that was a bitter pill to swallow because at that time it, it was the, the biggest achievement I'd had in my music career and the best money I'd ever earned. And I finally felt, okay, I spent all these years building up to this. It's not my band and it's not my history, but I'm the representative of that history. And I will carry this company's banner proudly for as long as they want me. And suddenly, boom, because emotions, as you said, got, the, got control of me. I was knocked out of that role and couldn't return. Now, the, the beautiful thing is I kept a relationship with them in the years following, even though it was a bitter pill to swallow when they said, we have to let you go because we just can't wait. Um, I, they kept me on their work petition for the years to come so I could go work in the States still. And ultimately in 2016, they brought me in as a, a as a replacement or an emergency singer for a couple of shows down in the States, a one-nighter in Florida and a one-nighter in New Mexico the next day. And it was like getting on the bicycle again. It was just so easy and felt so right. And I just slotted right in back into that guess who position. And it felt like full circle um, of, if there was ever any doubt that I couldn't return, I just proved, yes, I have it in me to return ultimately. And it was amazing the emotions of the people in the band that had been part of that, that crash event. And the, they were so, I learned finally eight years later how upset they'd all been and how it knocked them off their, their axis to, to have their whole future suddenly thrown in doubt. And that was, as much as I was empathetic and tried to understand other people's feelings, um, I just didn't fathom that until they told me how much, how bad it had been for them, you know, as the witnesses to this event that happened to me. It, the ripple effect of something that big is yeah. just incalculable. It's unbelievable, isn't it? So Carl, yes. you know, in the last few minutes that we have today, uh, you know, what do you got going on today? Like, I know you're, you've got this great book here that I just uh, finished reading, uh, a stranger, a stranger way to live. You can pick yes. it up on Amazon.com or a few other places. Favorite bookstore. Um, what do you? What do you? you know, I know. You, I know you're doing some speaking gigs. You're playing some corporate stuff. You got a few shows coming uh, up here in Canada with uh, Steve Harris from Iron Maiden. Yeah. Um, you know what? What's uh, what's 2018 wrapping up like for you? Well, it's very busy this summer. I've got a rehearsal in Buffalo tomorrow um, because I've I've got an American group of musicians out of the Buffalo area. And I call the band Carl Dixon and the last Buffalo. <laughs> and we're doing a show with, uh, with my buddy, Rick Emmett over in Batavia on Friday night at a, at oh, a great. big casino or racetrack event called Batavia Downs. Yeah. And I was, uh, that's where the, that's where Grand Funk Railroad played like a couple weeks ago when I was up that way. Right. Yeah. They're friends of mine too. When I was with the guess who I met all those bands and you know, it's just, it's nice relationships and I've seen played with them a few times since. Um, I've got, you know, all kinds of things. I'm doing a solo acoustic down by the dock at, or the locks at Bob Cajun on Thursday night and uh, playing 
somewhere on Saturday in Picton and I've got festival gigs with my, I have a show Carl Dixon sings the guess who I, because uh, I'm still friends with the band. They authorized. Okay. That's a name you can use. They're, they're corporate protection. Of course, they can never allow the impression that there are two guess who's running around because mm -hmm. other money is based on, if you want the guess who you have to get this, the band that they've made. So they're okay with me calling it Carl Dixon sings the guess who. And so I've been doing some corporate dates for that and got a few festivals, I think four or five of those coming up this summer. It's a whole mix of different things and performances up to the end of the year, um, Florida and Germany and Mexico. And so this is proving to be my best year since the accident. Well, we're looking forward to seeing you. I think it was December 14th at the Hard Rock Casino in Orlando or is it Hard Rock? Hard Rock yeah, Hotel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. We're looking forward to seeing you come down to Orlando. We're uh, definitely going to come up for that one because we only live about 90 minutes south of Orlando, so we'll come up for that. Very good. Um, yeah, it's uh, great. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know I, I mean, Triumph was another one of those bands back in that time, too. I'm happy that you and Rick are playing. Um, yeah. That was a kind of a band that kind of just fizzled away, too, back around that time. But uh, yeah. but that was it's cool. So, Carl, you know what? I really thank you for doing this. Uh, your story has inspired me. I know... Uh, we, we continue to comment back and forth on Facebook statuses all the time. So that's great. Uh, you know, uh, when you're talking to the guys at the hatch, give my best to them. Uh, sure. thank, and thank them for me, from everything that they helped me through my teenage years as well. <laughs> uh, that was great. Uh, again, thanks for doing this. All my best to your lovely bride too. I uh, saw her at the beginning of the show, came on and uh, get the get the computer all hooked up for us. Oh, yes. And uh, definitely, uh, and I think I mentioned this, that um, how much of a small world this is that you went to high school in Barrie with my brother-in-law, Ron Watson. So yeah, it is such a, it is such a small world. Carl, yes. thanks again for doing this. I really appreciate it. And we look forward to uh, getting the details of our arrangement hooked up for next April in Niagara on the Lake too. So we're looking forward to that. If I, may, if I may put in one last thought, because I, I should have done this. Sure. If, if you have people in Australia who, uh, who look in on this, I have to offer my, and I choke up whenever I think about it, the Australian healthcare system and the care I got there is the most amazing in the world. The doctors that gave me their very best to put me back together, the beautiful healthcare staff in the hospitals that were so kind to me and caring. Um, it, if you have to have a terrible car crash that rips you limb from limb, Australia is the place to do it, friend. <laughs> oh, there you, there you go. And you know, I, I know another thing too, I have to tell you this last story before we depart is I was on a plane from Toronto to Calgary when I was living on Calgary and Kim Mitchell was in, in the whole Kim Mitchell band. So Kim was two rows ahead of me on an air cannon. It's like Peter Fredette was on the other side of the aisle for me. And, you know, I, you know, and I, and when we got to Calgary airport Anne Murray picked up Kim Mitchell, which I thought was kind of weird. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, at the, at, the, at, the, at the end of the day, I went up to, I went up to Kim and said, you know, Kim, I don't want to be one of these typical people. I know, I know you got, you're a guy, you're a guy that's able to play guitar and sing and you get, you know, you have a life too. So if I'm intruding on that, please just tell me to back off. I just want to thank I just want to, I just want to thank you for you know your, the music that you created, and I know I know sometimes you guys get looked up to as these you know um, indestructible people, right? You know you're larger than life, and you know really, Carl, you and I are just guys that just happen to have a different profession. That's right. And uh, but 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 thank you for everything that you've done. Thank you for the music that you created over the years, and uh, you know thank you for being there when you know I've been sitting here in my house. All by myself, I say, you know, I go, I tell my device in the corner of the room, say, hey, play some Coney Hatch. 
and comes home with Coney Edge from Don. So <laughs> thanks for that. Thanks. Uh, thanks again. Best of luck for the rest of the year. And hey, we'll see. We'll, we'll make sure we get together when we're in Florida here in, in December. Very good. Oh, and for country fans listening, I have a new country album called Carl Dixon, Whole Nother Thing. And that's uh, got some singles on the radio this year. So check that out, too. And, and get this book, folks. Go to Amazon or whatever your favorite bookstore is and get this book. It's a really good read. Carl, thanks again. Uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking some more. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks, everyone.